Father, we thank you for this privilege. First of all, the privilege of your word, the privilege of gathering together, the privilege of our salvation that you purchased through grace, through your son, Jesus Christ. As we look at your word, Lord, keep our hearts soft as we celebrate together in remembrance of your son, Jesus Christ, that you would change us, that we would grow up in Christ, learn to love you more and reflect you more. And we ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen. So they said I had an hour and a half this morning. Oh, somebody laughed. That's good. Okay. Still a sense of humor. (laughs) So you can put the tomatoes back. All right. So let me read uh, our passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. And I might be going kind of fast here, but I'll try and give you the high points in your blank notes there. Uh, I'll try and give you uh, the most important points. And in, 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 in the intro, there's a couple things I'll let you know to look for. So uh, it'll be a little detective game, and, uh, but I will major the, uh, mention the main points. So 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So this whole portion of Scripture in the context, and we're going to look at that, we're going to kind of funnel down. I call this the Google Map perspective. We're going to get there. We're going to go from the satellite to the street view. You know, I love that function of Google, right? So that's what we're going to do here. Uh, so here, why are we here? This is really all about right worship. You know, as we come together and we celebrate communion, 
and we do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ and what he did, we're talking about our salvation. For those of us who know Christ, who have accepted Christ through faith alone, through his death, burial and resurrection, this, we're looking at the death and what that did. How that made us right, the fancy word for that is justification, how that put us right before God. We're celebrating that. It's a celebration and it's fellowship together to do that as we thank God and do this in, in remembrance of him. You know, it was a command he gave us. So in this passage, we're going to look at a number of things. And there's some things for you. If you like trying to figure out what's going on with the message, there's some things I'm going to talk about that have to do with our past. So you can, oh, things in the past. Okay, that was in the past. There's things in the present, things now as we live for Christ. There's things in the future to look forward to. And then there's some things inwardly we need to do and some things outwardly. So you have the past, present, future, inward, and outward. That's a lot of stuff. That's all right in there. Google Mac perspective. So we're going to go, we're going to kind of look at the context in which Corinthians was written through the inspiration of God. Paul writing this letter to uh, the church at Corinth, okay, which is in modern-day Greece. It's on a little isthmus about four miles wide, okay, and uh, probably written around 55 AD, which some think, many scholars think, was before the Gospels were written. So it's interesting. It's interesting because Paul quotes some things Jesus said. It's during his third missionary journey, Corinth was established as a church, and you can check all of that out in uh, Acts 20 um, and see some of that history. So as I said, Corinth was located on this four-mile-wide isthmus, and it was geographically, it was a great place to be. I don't expect you to remember this. The Saronic Gulf, it almost sounds like the ironic, ironic, but it's Saronic. To the east, the Gulf of Corinth on the west, and this Corinth was located in the middle of that four-mile-wide isthmus on a plateau. Okay, like a lot of cities like to be built that way. For many centuries, all the north and south traffic in that area went through or over that isthmus. Why? Well, it was about a 250-mile sailing around the uh, large peninsula there of Greece, that southern peninsula, and it was a very, very dangerous journey because the sea was not safe. So they would actually tow their ships, whether it was for war or commerce, across that four-mile-wide isthmus. And they had, they had this beautiful uh, stone uh, street, if you will, called the Dialkos. D-I-O-L-K-O-S is the, alliteration, uh, the translation in the English. And this was, it was kind of like they would pull these things on a train, a flatbed train, and then they would manually haul it across, you know, that four or five mile trip because it wasn't straight because they tried to stay on level land. So that's how they did that. They did that for centuries. And because of that, Corinth became a very, very well-to-do place. Plus, all the ways of the world were there, okay? Good, bad, and ugly. And uh, so it became a major trade city. Believe it or not, in the first century, Nero started a canal, okay? He said, well, you know, why don't we build a canal instead of have these guys having to haul these things? They never finished it until the 19th century, okay? That's government for you, okay? <laughs> 
The Isthmus Games were there. That was the second most popular ones next to the Olympian Games, okay? In the Grecian world, athletics were extremely important, just like our day. Corinth was, as you would expect, morally corrupt to the nth degree, even by the world standards, okay, surrounding people. And there was a word to Corinthianize was the verb, the adjective that people would use when they saw gross immorality. They would use that term. Now, I don't know if they use Californiaize or not, maybe, but I haven't heard that one. But Corinth was a wicked, debauched place. Some of the worst sins were still found among some church members. Came into the church, of course, because these people had been saved out of that culture, and they brought some of that with them. And this is one of the reasons Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was writing to Corinth. Paul was there for about a year and a half. It's a long time, 18 months, especially for him. He traveled a lot in his roughly 30 years of ministry. He traveled a whole lot. So if you look in Acts 18, you can see that. Acts 18 and 20 will give you some history of Corinth. Here are the most serious problems, not the only ones. <laughs> the most serious. They continued to have problems with factions. Chapter 1 talks about that. Carnality, which is just being worldly, fleshly. Immaturity, okay? They continually struggled with worldliness. They could not let go of those practices that God had saved them out of, and they were continuing some of those practices. Because of this, Paul's inspired letter to them calls for correction. So this is a corrective letter. In their behavior and commands their faithful Christians, those who are faithful, to break fellowship with those who are disobedient. Even though those who were disobedient were believers, Paul knew that for the sanctity and purity of the church, they were going to need to break fellowship. And so this is kind of a harsh letter, and, uh, but it's done in love. So they were disobedient and unrepentant, and therefore Paul says, you know, you need to disassociate yourself from those people. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, deals with a lot of topics in 1 Corinthians. The cross, divine and human wisdom, the difference the work of the Spirit, carnality, sins of the flesh, eternal rewards. He talks about that. Chapter 3, salvation, our sal what we're saved out of, and 2, our sanctification, which is how are we to live for Christ. And this is the whole point. The corrective letter is, you're doing this, you should be doing this. And we're going to get into those details. The nature of Christ, our union with Christ, the divine role of women, touchy subject these days, right? The divine role of men, marriage, divorce, spiritual gifts, the unity of the church as one body, love. Chapter 15, the resurrection, the whole chapter. So if we were to outline 1 Corinthians based on their problems, because I looked at a bunch of different outlines, but I thought, hey, let's outline this based on their problems. That was kind of interesting. Disunity and divisions, first three chapters, and here, actually. Not serving one another but themselves, chapter 4. Immorality, chapters 5 and 6. Marriage, divorce, remarriage, chapter 7. Abuse of Christian liberty, chapters 8 through the beginning of 11. Abuse of true worship, which is where we're at, because we're going to talk about the communion service and the Lord's Supper. That has to do with our worship. And under that is the role of men and women, the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to talk about, and spiritual gifts and love, where those fall in. And then finally in chapter 15, 
the one bright and shining capstone of the whole book, the resurrection, our hope, the hope for the church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we're going to get there April 21st, right? That's Easter. Right now we're talking about remember, do this in remembrance of me. What, what is my death? Why should we do that? Why are we remembering that? Chapter 16 is pretty much a charge that Paul gives and some greetings. So let's look at the text. Those of you who like outlines, point number one, verses 17 through 22 of chapter 11. I call this instruction and rebuke. Correction in the way they practice the Lord's Supper. So I'll read those verses, make a couple comments. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Paul starts a new subject here in verse 17. He's had another subject in the first part of that. In fact, in the first verse of chapter 11, what does he say? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Wow, that's a bold statement. Be imitators of me. And then he tells you what that might mean. So here we see dissension, division, prideful attitudes of the Corinthians. Talks about some of their basic problems being elitism. They were very, uh, if you know anything about the Indian culture in India, okay, not the Indians, uh, I don't even know, we don't call them that anymore here in America. Talking about the continent of India. There's a caste system. I think you're all aware of that. And if you're in the upper caste, you, uh, you know, if you're proper caste identity, you don't associate with the lower caste, etc. Okay, so here they had a similar thing, the rich and the poor, okay? Uh, and we'll get into that. Their emphasis on personal freedom. My freedom. You're infringing on my freedom. Does this sound like anywhere we live today? You know, we have the same thing. We have elitism today. We have emphasis on personal freedom today. Many of our laws are based on not biblical justice, but personal freedom. Their assumption of wisdom. He talks about the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. They assume they're wise, but they're not. And that's a kind of a bad place to be. I pray that the Lord helps us not be there. All of the subjects Paul addresses, which were sent to him by letters, and uh, in those days they didn't have email or texting, okay, so they had runners who would deliver letters or deliver a message orally. They are all revolve around these issues. So even their collective love feast, which is what they would do before the communion service, they were to have this quote-unquote love feast, which is a time, it was supposed to be, a time of fellowship. And as an example, I, my uh, background, I used to be involved with the Grace Brethren Church. Those of you who know about the Grace Brethren Church, they're known as the Triple Dippers. They baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you go down three times. <laughs> so uh, hopefully you got a strong 
pastor doing that. Um, but one of the things they do for their communion service is they have foot washing first, which is symbolic of our daily need of cleansing of sin. Okay, there's nothing magic about that, but they choose to do that. Then they have the love feast, which is uh, kind of a glorified snack. It's meant to represent a meal. We'll have testimonies during that time. You sing some songs. It's kind of a neat time of fellowship, actually, that love feast. And then you do the bread and the cup after that. Well, they kind of, in the first century, did something similar, except they had full meals. And the rich and the poor and all of those in between would come together, and this would be a time for true fellowship with one another, kind of like we do our potlucks. It's the same idea. And then after that, they would do the bread and the cup. So that's, that's how they did this. However, rights, ability, and status, rights, my rights, my ability, you know, I, I'm a rocket scientist and you're not, you know, you can barely add. Status, you know, I, I live in a certain neighborhood, you don't live there, so therefore I don't hang with you. That superseded love, service, and the health of the body as a whole. Okay, a common problem. We, these are things we still struggle with, but Corinth is a... Have you ever heard, you know, you, uh, you can always be a bad example. You can be a good example or a bad example. I always hope I'm a good one. Sometimes I'm a bad one. And you can say, well, you can always look at Chuck. He was a bad example. Don't do that. Well, here in the case of Corinth, Paul is kind of pointing that finger and saying, don't do that. That's a bad example. Selfishness, gluttony based on social distinctions. We, in our culture, we do have those, but not as strongly as the Roman Greek world. Extremely elitist, okay? Extremely caste. You have the haves and the have-nots socially. Okay, those who have the rich parties, and they, you know, yeah, I, I just spent uh, $90,000 on a party Saturday. And you're going, what? What a waste of money, you know? So you had the social halves, and they, it was just like that. Then you had the wealthy and the poor. That's easy to see. You had the men and the women. There was great disparity there. You had the freedmen and the slaves. A lot of slaves in that first century. Some say as much as 70%, maybe higher, of slavery. Then you have the Romans, slant Greeks, and all of the others, because they were very uppity about their heritage. Then you have, in our realm, you have the spiritual elite versus the, quote, common believer. And uh, I think today in uh, our Sunday school class, we're talking about uh, unity, and we looked at those passages in Ephesians that talks about one body, one baptism, one Lord, one faith, and all those. And, uh, you know, it alludes also later on in chapter 4, it talks about that there are a variety of gifts, but one body. We're not all hands or feet, okay? I gave the illustration of this, that uh, if I'm a hammer, I think everything's a nail. And that's just not true. Everything is not a nail. We all fit together, we need one another. So this spiritual elitism is being the hammer that thinks everything's a nail or thinking you are the gift. I'm the gift the church needs. They, they just can't do it without me, you know? And uh, of course, as soon as you leave, it's like taking your ha hand out of a bucket of water. No hole. God goes on. 
his church moves. It's a horrible attitude. Moving on. So Paul gives the instruction and rebuke to the believers. He goes on further to support his authority for this instruction and refocus the Corinthians on the purpose. They've lost it. Refocus. What are you guys doing? Come back. Do this in remembrance of me, me being Jesus Christ, not me being me, Chuck or somebody else, Jesus. So number two, this is correction in the way they practice the bread and the cup, and this is really the, the center uh, point I want to park on a little bit. And uh, I have till what, 12, 15? <laughs> you guys, I know. I'm sorry, because those of you that know me well know it's, yeah, I could be, what's the word? I can go on for a while. So uh, I'll try and spare you that. So here's what I'm getting to. Number two, correction in the way they practice the bread and the cup. That's uh, verses 23 through 26, if you like notes. So here we're going to, Paul is doing this. Remember where Paul got this command. He's commanding them. You know, some of these are in the imperative in the Greek, which means it's a command. It's not an option. Of course, Paul's authority comes from God, right? He's going to state that. Secondarily, remember why we are doing this in the first place. The origin is from Jesus, who said, do this in remembrance of me. So I'll read these verses, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we talked about Paul establishing his authority. That's in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, So here he's an obedient ambassador. He received this from the Lord, maybe directly. uh, Portions of Scripture seem to allude to the fact that he received direct revelation from Jesus. His conversion was that way. So uh, um, perhaps he did. Perhaps he just uh, got the news from the apostles. It's not clear here. But his authority is based on a command he was given uh, from the Lord. And so he takes that personally and delivers it as an obedient ambassador of Jesus Christ. So here's a short history. I know some of you know this. I love this history of uh, the Passover being changed into the communion service. And I'm going to, uh, first of all, just allude, you do not have to change there, but the Passover, if you want to look at the history of that, in context, Exodus 12 in the Old Testament. So here, here we, most of us know this the 10th plague. So there were 10 plagues that God used on Egypt to move his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. The 10th one was a judgment to kill the firstborn. Okay, I think it included animals, not just people. So if by faith, God said, if by faith you put blood on the doorposts and a lintel, that top part, you know, you slaughter a lamb and you do this, you know, I will pass over you. I won't kill your firstborn. Okay? So those who are obedient to that um, 
their firstborn lived. And they had a celebration that went on for millennia, actually, in light of God's deliverance and taking them out of bondage after 400 years of bondage. So here, I'm going to look at Luke chapter 22. You do not have to turn there. But in Luke 22, verses 14 through 23, Jesus changes the significance of this Passover feast in the upper room, right? Just before he's about to be crucified. Of course, the disciples don't know that. He gives it a completely new relevance for the church, symbolizing our deliverance from sin and a new relationship with God via a new deal, a new covenant, a new testament. Our Bibles are the Old Testament and the New Testament, essentially the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, etc. The New Covenant was salvation through faith, through grace, through Christ alone. So this was to look back at the atoning death of Christ, and that's why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, my atoning sacrifice, our provision for salvation, the only reason we can have a right relationship with our Lord. It's interesting, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, I just bring this up, he did not mention the lamb, which was a big deal in the Jewish home, killing that lamb and eating it, you had to eat the whole thing. Um, but he doesn't mention that. So, verse 19 in that passage, he talks about the bread against, you know, no mention of the lamb. And of course, I think, you know, in John, he calls himself the bread of life, right? I think John 6, in fact, he uses conversation in which they think he's talking about cannibalism, Jesus, but he's not. It's a figure of speech that signifies his whole body and metaphorically us accepting him by faith, what he's done for us. So our once for all sacrifice for our salvation, that is the key to our remembrance. Are we happy about that? Do we realize the significance of that? Um, And then when he says, do this in remembrance of me in the context of Luke 22, it's a, for those Greek people, present, present active imperative, imperative idea, it's a command. It's a command. The present means it's a command that has the idea of continuous repetition. You continue to do this. You just don't do it one time. He gets to the third cup, and he makes that unique because this is the new covenant in my blood, the cup of blessing in the normal Passover meal. And uh, I'm not going to take time to go over that, but it's kind of a neat thing to look at. So Jesus changes this Passover meal that had been done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's radical. Praise God. We're going back to 1 Corinthians 11 now. Sometimes I forget to tell you guys stuff like that. So we're going back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26. Verse 23 I think B, I call it the second part of that, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. That's interesting that God mentions that betrayal. And I think many times God in his providence and his wisdom in scripture, uh, I think of uh, one time in the Navy, I went to Columbia a few times and I wanted to buy an emerald for Linda. And emeralds are very well known. Uh, Columbia is one of the, used to be one of the better places for emerald production. And uh, just like a diamond, they would have this beautiful black 
background for you to look at your emeralds and a loop, you know, the whole little thing, and they'd train you how to do it. But the deal was, in order for that diamond or that emerald or the rare gem to really shine, it's got this really black background, right, to make it shine. And I think God sometimes, he tells us things like this because in the midst of betrayal, okay, in Jesus's, uh, you know, he's going to get betrayed by Judas. And here the Corinthians are messing up royally. So there's kind of another black background here. And yet Jesus, the Holy Spirit through Paul, talks about this wonderful thing to remember. Look at what Jesus, you know, can we not be thankful for looking at the past? And this will affect our present and our future. So the beauty of Christ's sacrifice against the dark backdrop of betrayal and disobedience it's a diamond dropped on the black background of a strong rebuke of worldly carnal selfish and insensitive attitudes and behavior our God is a loving God he always wants to reconcile and that's what he's doing here he loves his people even when we are messing up and he wants to reconcile us not only in salvation but also in our relationship to him on a daily basis and one another because this includes one another's, because they were messing that up. So bread in verse 23, is the, it's the new symbol now. It's a new symbol of unity that Jesus assigned. I love this in verse 24. This is my body, which is for you, Jesus says. Isn't that beautiful? This is my body, which is for you. I was trying to think of maybe including a clip uh, from the Jesus Project on the crucifixion, but it was just too long. But I watched it a couple times, and it was really well done, actually. Uh, just the death of Christ on the cross with the thieves and what the soldiers did, and they basically were just quoting from the book of John. So there was no other text. Uh, the actors or actresses, they just quoted what was said in the book of John. And it was really, man, it just gave another dimension to see a real live person up on that cross and what happened and it really kind of jerked my heart a little bit you know to say this do in remembrance of me and and that's just part of it that's just a one part of it you know and uh and i thought yeah i said jesus did that for me yes yes chuck i did that for you and i did that for you all of you so this is the idea my the whole person in the mind of the jew was the body it's not just the physical body so when, they were, when Jesus was saying that, when Paul is repeating that, it's the idea of, of the whole being, the whole person. For us, for you. I, you know, if that's all you get out of this today by God's providence, remember that. Jesus did that for you, for you, okay? Two beautiful words. The reason we can stand before God in right relationship is because he did that for you. Amen. The cup here is used to represent the lamb's blood that was smeared on the door, but now came to represent the blood of the lamb of God. Remember that verse out of John chapter 1? Behold the lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. Shed for our salvation. For you. The Old Covenant was ratified repeatedly by the continuous blood of animals offered by men. I don't know if you've ever figured out the sacrificial system and how, how many animals 
they had to do and kill. And, and that went on for centuries and centuries and centuries. Okay? Incredible. Jesus, the new covenant, has been ratified, what? Once for all. Once for all. Hebrews 9.28, if you want to look that up. You don't have to look it up now. The old deliverance was merely from Egypt to Canaan. It was temporary. The new covenant or deliverance from sin to salvation, death to life, Satan's realm to God's heaven is eternal. That's why we do this in remembrance of him. It's a big deal. God says so. Passover was transformed. Just like when Jesus died at the moment of his death, that curtain tore, the whole Old Testament system was done away with. You you realize how radical that is? We don't. Uh, Maybe some of you do if you understand the Jewish system and what it did. There was some beauty in that because it was all pictures of what Jesus would do once for all. But they did this, you know, this was part of their blood and their life. Jesus radically changed all that for you, permanently, eternally. We now eat the bread and drink the cup, not to remember the Red Sea and the Exodus, but to remember the cross and our Savior. If you'll forgive me, I'm going to read from a commentary. Uh, For the Hebrew, to remember meant much more than simply to bring something to mind or merely to recall information. To truly remember is to go back in one's mind and recapture as much of the reality and significance of an event or experience as you possibly can. You try and relive it. Somebody says to remember, okay? To remember Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross is to relive with him his life, his agony, his suffering, his death as much as is humanly possible. So when they had a multi-dimensional reason, a remembering thing in the Jewish mind in here. So when I looked at that video, yes, it was a video. Yes, it was an actor. And they depicted that as accurately as they could. And they used the word of scripture. It moved me as imperfect as it might have been. It helped me to get there to see that. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do not offer a sacrifice again. That's a Catholic tradition. They think Jesus is physically uh, crucified and it's his his real blood and body, but that's not scriptural. What we do is we remember his once-for-all sacrifice because does that make sense that he called it once-for-all and then it would be repeated daily and those kind of? No, that's, that's, that's not scriptural. So what we do is we rededicate ourselves to obedient service for his sake. And in that, we treat one another right. We don't have those factions. We don't have that rich and poor stuff going on. We don't have those elitism things going on. We love one another. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a present and past implication there. 
There's no frequency mandated in Scripture in how often we're to do this. Uh, some think in the New Testament they may have done it on a daily basis at some period. Some did not. Depending, you know, During persecution, it might be tough to do that. Um, but he says, as often as we're willing to gather and to remember and proclaim the death of Christ, we're to do this. It's a permanent feast until he comes. So the future is he's coming. Isn't that kind of cool? Right there. He's coming. Oh, Lord, tonight it would be wonderful. <laughs> it's a testimony also to the world. It's not for our sakes alone, although it is for our sakes, but not alone. It's a proclamation for the world's sake. When we do this in remembrance of him, we proclaim to the world his reality, the reality of salvation through the cross, the reality of unity, the reality of his love, that it really works, testifies that we're not ashamed of our Lord or his blood. It testifies that we belong to him we are his children, we're his people, and that we're obedient because we love him. You know, I think of uh, uh, things I do for, for my wife or my family that uh, say chores, okay? I don't know what you have in your house, but in our house, it's kind of the guy's thing to take out the garbage. You know, that's the guy's thing in our house, and, so, and I do that regularly. I, I, honestly, I don't think anything about it because I love my family. It's not a big deal, you know? And if we love God, those things he asks us to do are not a big deal. It's a byproduct of my right relationship to my Lord. Finally, and we've already said this, it's a reminder of our Lord's promise, his promise of coming again. That should be a motivation. Was to, uh, Paul even wrote to the Thessalonians and said, you know, the rapture and his second coming, that should be a motivation to live rightly and treat one another well, to tell others about Jesus. So here we have it. This is a celebration of the past. Okay, so there's the past thing, Christ's sacrificial death on your behalf. The present, because of that, I can stand right before God right now, right now. The future, the second coming, and the future kingdom of God that he's going to let us be part of. Past, present, future. Finally, well, I, I don't know, pastors say that a lot and they don't get there. Um, I should probably change that word. Next, how about that? Next, verses 27 through 32 is number three in my outline, correction in the way they practiced preparation for the bread and the cup. Preparing themselves. This is a portion... That, I haven't heard uh, uh, preached or taught on too often. Uh, and yet this is a, uh, in the context of the Lord's Supper. And uh, so here I have two points that I came up with. One is self-judgment. I examine myself, judge myself rightly. That's the assumption. Resulting in blessing. Self-judgment resulting in blessing. Or God's judgment resulting in chastisement. Yes, he spanks his children. Sometimes that means they die. I, I, now, I, I will never be one to say, oh, they died because 
whatever, that would, not, that would be presumptuous. I don't know the cause and effect routine that God goes through to do that. That's his wisdom. Or you get sick. It even says some are sick. We're going to get there. Some, are, some die. The euphemism is sleep, which meant death. So here we are. We're going to read 27 through 32. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man or a woman, a person, must examine him or herself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself first. Where's your heart before the Lord? Do you have sin to confess? Do you have a relationship you need to make right with someone else? Matthew 5 tells us to do that, right? Before you make an offering of whatever sort, real or, or a spiritual type. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick. Number sleep. Wow, that's, that's in scripture. I did not make that up. I don't know how God does that. And I don't want to be on the receiving end. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we, we would not be judged. You know, if our discernment is accurate, if we're keeping short accounts of sin. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Why? So that we will not be condemned along with the world. You know, God's not going to send you to hell. That's not biblical. But he may take you home early. So I don't know. That's kind of good, but I don't know if I want to have it that way. Some of that's a mystery. I'm not going to try and explain that right now. Finally, the, first two, the last two verses in this section, verses 33 and 34, I'm calling this a final warning and closing comment. For the inspiration of Scripture, Paul says this, So then, my brethren, my brethren, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you come together to eat for that love feast, wait. Wait for one another. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, verse 4. Wow, that's a, love is patient. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that he will not come together for judgment. Relates to those preceding two verses. And then he says this kind of maybe strange thing. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So here's my, my final conclusion about those two verses. I'm saying this. Notice that God has not seen fit to pass on all the detailed description that Paul gave to his church. He doesn't talk about everything. And is he only talking about the Lord's Supper and the, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come, or is it talking about something else? It, you know, it, it implies that he, there's probably some other things because there's a lot, you know, that list I let, read to you in the beginning of problems. <laughs> there's a lot of problems, <laughs> okay? There's probably a few more subordinate ones. The essence of the Lord's Supper is not found in a rule book of liturgy, but in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're to remember that relationship, what he did for you. Remember that for you? It's a wonderful two words. For you. Relationship implied there. The details of religious rituals are not as significant as a good heart toward God. So this is the key that Paul's getting to. He ends this section with, I should examine myself, my heart before God. Or not do this, because that's how important this is. And when I'm right 
I love God. And what happens when I love God? I love you. I love you when I love God. And when I love you, I treat you right. I put you before myself. A lot of one, one another's in the Bible. That is just a small reason why we should do this in remembrance of me, as Jesus said.